You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? The reason I had never, or the reason I had never gotten around to it, but wanted to see it, was that um, I'm a big fan of uh, Linklater movies, and Ethan Hawke is in many. Linklater movies. Right. So uh, I started poking around for other Ethan Hawke movies, and um, someone randomly mentioned, you've got to see Gattaca because you like sci-fi, you like Ethan Hawke. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, so uh, that and my, uh, my girlfriend had apparently seen it in high school biology, and so she wanted to see it again, so I watched it with her. Um, and it was very different the way she remembered it. But yes, I, this is the first time I had ever seen it. I don't know if we want to start exactly with, like, what did you think of the film? Because it's usually more interesting to talk about the specific themes, you know. One thing I want to talk about a little bit up front was that um, it's, there's a lot of restraint in this film. It's done out of necessity, didn't have much of a budget. Um, and as a result, it got a lot of award nominations for production design and art direction, which uh, makes sense because with those kind of categories, you're kind of graded more on a curve, you know, with the resources you have as opposed to visual effects, which is more like a technological arms race. And watching it again uh, the other day, it really struck me that it is kind of a low-budget film. A lot of it is implied about a, a grand space program and a futuristic society, but very little of it's actually explicitly shown. Yeah, it reminded me a lot uh, in certain ways of a lot of the uh, the old Hollywood style of the the forties with horror movies, and that so much of what they're talking about, you don't, you never see. You see spaceships launched, but you barely see any of the actual mechanics of it. It's just a light in the sky. Yeah, everything that you see that is this, you know, quasi futuristic society is is pretty visible, pretty tactile, and something that you could do now. They did a very good job of keeping things very real in that sense. Yeah, I could recreate the spaceship effect in my backyard with a flare gun. Yeah, right. And they used that same effect like every time, and it was it was kind of it was almost charming in that way, where it's like, oh, it's it's the same one. I think they're just playing it every time, right? <laughs> I definitely agree with where it's very minimal, and so because uh because of the way you used restraint, I wasn't sure which direction you're going to go with it, mm-hmm. but I see what the restraint was because it was imposed. It made the film very minimal, like the the corridors were just you know kind of metallic and simple with the yes. simple white lights. It's um. Kind of, uh, what was I think of? I guess the 2001, where it's mm-hmm. kind of like that idea of the future, uh, where it's you know that kind of very simple, very uh, purposeful. Everything has right. A, it's very it's it's as much as it needs to be, and nothing more. That's because that's kind of like the weird way in which we kind of view the future, uh, where it's like the yeah. opposite of what's actually happened, where it's like more stuff <laughs> everywhere. And it's interesting the way that they can create that because I looked up that. A lot of the buildings that they used in in the movie were uh, buildings made by Frank Lloyd Wright, who made, who did most of his work in architecture in the early to mid twentieth uh, century. So it's weird that in order to you know get to that sort of futuristic sense of it, you go back in time, back to these old architects that were really more exper- like experimental than we than we're seeing today with that. Well, so. one of the ways they kept the budget under control and tried to keep it, you know, to create a futuristic society is they had to create a society where certain things were timeless, like they used the old-fashioned cars, for example. Yeah. 
So they kind of have to go the other way. And I, I, the thing about the corridors, about the kind of stark simplicity, that's actually really lucky because it seems like a problem, right? There's the minimalism, the lack of the budget. Um, but it ends up dovetailing with the story perfectly because mm. obviously in a lot of these futuristic films, like you say, they kind of assume that in the future everything is going to be hyper-efficient, you know, not going to adorn anything, not going to make anything look any nicer than it has to. And that's sort of what's happening with people in this film, right? Is it, mm. they're, they're being ruthlessly pragmatic about human ability. There's, there's no value to surprise or anything like that. They don't like it. So in this case, the set design inadvertently ends up mirroring the themes of the film. I don't know how deliberate that is, or if it's one of those things where whenever you have a film like this that's kind of a cult classic, it's because of some serendipitous thing like that, right? Where the the limitations the film had to uh, surpass, which again, even that sentence is sort of a metaphor for the film, <laughs> right? Ends up helping with the theme. Yeah, that's like that old story about um, like Monty Python with the coconuts. Was it was part of a <laughs> budgetary limitation? <It's> like <laughs> legitimately, it became a joke out of out of necessity. Right, out of necessity, and you know, it seems like really great art is really good at this. I feel like the thing that keeps coming up is that it has limitations and it just incorporates them. Right. It, it it makes it makes sure that it takes those limitations and rather than turn them into actual limitations, it use uses that to funnel the creativity and to do that in a very interesting way. And I think Etika did a, a really good job of uh, of showcasing that. It set its it set its boundaries, or maybe it didn't set it itself, but it had uh, budgetary limits. Then turned that into a thematic element of it too. It's sort of a creative jujitsu. Yeah. Right. And you could be for th- you could be forgiven for thinking. I just want to get this out of the way up front. This is not based on a Philip K. Dick novel. It's not. I know it really. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) seems like it is and the director Andrew Nichols uh, even uh, did a film later in time based on a Philip K. Dick novel he writes movies that are all like little Philip K. Dick novels but it's not it's original which (laughs) surprised me to learn actually Um, especially because it hits that theme the dystopian sci-fi thing that you know they all do this right it's actually kind of almost boring now where a dystopian sci-fi future is not fully dystopian it's not like a hellhole right but They've taken something that our society does right now, and they've multiplied it by a thousand, and they've assumed that at no point between now and then will any kind of, will there be any kind of countercultural pushback. Right? <laughs> we're just gonna keep running with whatever we're right. doing, and usually that's a little heavy-handed, and that's okay. You know, sci-fi it's it's usually sort of a morality play, uh, sort of a warning. But I want to say I think the heavy-handedness is a little more warranted with this film than the other ones. Because most sci-fi is about taking that and just, like I said, extrapolating it. And it's about what's possible if we don't change, even though we usually do change. But this seems less about what's possible and more about what's inevitable. I'm going to post in the thread, along with the podcast, links to a couple of very recent articles about some of the latest research on this. And, you know, some of it's a little bit of uh, fear-mongering and hand-wringing, to be sure. But when I look at this, I think of the effect of, like, uh, uh, school districts on property values, you know, right. and the way people say, look, well, I have to do this. It's my children's future and, and, and the prices go up and up. And I start to think, you know, if this happens at all, how could we avoid it happening a lot? Mm-hmm. I, and what happens in the movie isn't even that far off from what actually happens. Because, I mean, I would assume that the people in the movie that are choosing their, their children as, as genetic perfects are people of high income. And mm-hmm. yeah. right now, the, the, greatest factor in uh in academic success is your income bracket so it's not it's not exactly far off from what it is and there's there's um and schools universities all of the time do under the table sorts of economic discrimination based on maximizing their profits from this um for for what they can get so it's not really 
that far off from what we're doing now. It's just sort of a, a literalization of it, making it making it evident what it really is. Yeah, and the thing I find interesting about that is that, and this is why it's potentially insidious, is it's not that there's any grand evil at the center of it. Every person's individual decision at every step of the process is understandable and reasonable. Why wouldn't you want your children to have a leg up? And then you think, well, the, the college has its own aims and it wants successful alumni, so you can't really blame them for that. And that's kind of what you mean when you say that there's a systemic problem, right? It's not that there's some insidious figure at the center of it. It's that everyone along the way is acting in a reasonable way to produce an unacceptable outcome. Right. It's, it's sort of the heuristics end up end up favoring certain things over uh, over other things. So it just ends up being the the best choices end up being the same ones for each person. So it's almost like a tragedy of the genetic commons, except you know it's a zero sum kind of thing. <laughs> I don't want to talk about just the social aspect of the film, of course, but it's pretty hard to avoid with this one because it's so central. That's actually the thing is um, when you were talking about uh, it being heavy-handed, I actually found it not as heavy-handed as most other science fiction because science fiction has kind of a push to be um, you know, a prescriptive morality-wise. Yes. And, and this one, to me, it had conflicting portrayals. So I definitely agree with, with, with saying that there is like a sort of classist push in the movie where – it's about the – it's basically you know, magnifying the gap between rich and poor. Um, but then, so there's definitely an aspect where I could see – I could see a Marxist or someone like that looking at this and, and, and concentrating on the ever-widening gap. But then there's a very American capitalist yes, way in which yes. he confronts mm-hmm. the, the system and succeeds. Mm-hmm. The weird thing about this movie is it's, he's not a messiah. He doesn't take down the system in the end of the movie. Right. He succeeds for his own goals. The system stays in place, but it's very much an individual kind of mm. uh, con- like attacking the system. Or, Well, I, I shouldn't say attacking the system. It's an individual taking on the system for his own goals and trying to make right. it work. And there are a number of people that do that. There are people that, that help him. We find out at the end that, that uh, one of the doctors has been secretly helping him through all of this. But they, these are all people that are within the system, not taking it, uh, not taking it down, but sort of working with it and trying to cope with it. You know, I wonder if they deliberately cast the doctor, the actor, as bald for that role <laughs> uh, to, to kind of hint that yeah. he was he was I think age-wise it seems like he's sort of between the two generationally like maybe he was brought up when this wasn't as common wasn't as universal um, but the baldness it, it's either a poor casting decision or a really good one <laughs> right right because um, it's sort of a foreshadowing uh, about the whole thing right I also do like that there there's a lot of cheap there's so a lot of the things I ended up liking about the movie is cheap shots it didn't end up taking like there wasn't like a lunchroom <laughs> scene where there was like a bully, you know, like pushing over invalids and whatever, you know, it was right. under the surface kind of tension. And you, and very much like you were saying before, uh, everyone is aware of it and kind of doesn't like it because but it's kind of like a what do you do? Like everyone has to like if you don't take this leg up, you're going to lose compared to everyone else. Uh, and but yeah, I just I just like that there wasn't like, you know, obvious, no invalids allowed signs just like all over the halls <laughs> like that, where it let itself be realistic and wasn't just delivering this classist like it was me up front with it. They didn't have separate water fountains or something, right. at least not that we saw. Um, I like what you said earlier, though, about kind of seeing both sides of the political spectrum on this. Like this is a movie that both Karl Marx and Ayn Rand might love. You know, they would see what they wanted to out of it, I think, because you mm-hmm. can definitely you're right. There's sort of a meritocracy thing here, right, which is it's saying it's terrible that there's all this class based distinction. But then it's also saying he's not Vincent's not good because, you know, he's an underdog. He's good because he's good. Like he's legitimately mm-hmm. he deserves to be there. So he's exceptional. So it's sort of praising exceptionality but it's praising actual exceptionality as opposed to you know manufactured you know classist exceptionality 
And there's a lot of undercurrents of, which we haven't touched on yet, there's a lot of undercurrents of faith here. And I think one of the reasons I like it, I like films that take theology seriously because so, so few of them do, whether they have anything positive or negative to say about it. You just don't see a lot of that. And here there's a lot of like stealth theology, I want to say. There's sort of the idea that suffering is maybe not inherently always bad, or at least that the relationship humans have with suffering is kind of complicated because you know sometimes suffering is just suffering and sometimes it's adversity. And sometimes mm. so many people in the moment dislike it when something difficult happens, but very, very often they look back and say, well, that made me who I was. And in Vincent's case, mm. the adversity, the suffering he goes through makes him what he is. But yeah, I'd definitely say that was stealthy because I didn't, I didn't uh, think of that at all during the, <laughs> the two times that I watched it. There was one place it wasn't stealthy, which is that Jerome's mother is holding a rosary while she's giving oh, birth yeah, to him. Yeah. And I think they, they call people who aren't genetically engineered. They call them faith births. Right? Yeah, faith births and yeah. god children, mm-hmm. which that's, that's less stealthy. But Also, also degenerates, which was one of the heavy-handed <laughs> things, but it yeah, was, that was definitely forgivable. Almost, that, although it was slightly better when they had the uh, Jude, Law, Jude Law's character named Eugene, that was, yes. which means well-born. <laughs> yeah. That was a little better than degenerate. I noticed they stressed the they they stressed the the name differently. It wasn't Eugene. It was Eugene. Eugene, yeah. right? Yeah, a degenerate. I feel like that's a first draft pun that probably yeah. shouldn't have made it yeah. into the the final film. Um, in addition to the theological aspect, there's actually um, most people know uh, C.S. Lewis for you know his Narnia books. Um, but he wrote did a lot of other um, apologetics work, and he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, which is basically about basically predicting this in like i think it was the 1950s he wrote it where he points out that what people when people say we're going to conquer nature and they mean it in this regard right that we're going to kind of improve humans it's not really man conquering nature it's some men conquering others because they control what the next men will be like and what's interesting is the the way that they set up where you're talking about having to face adversary and you have to suffer and it makes you better for it is that they, they put up the people that didn't have to mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as suffering in their own way where uh, Eugene, uh, Jude Law's character, I think that's easy to say because I completely missed that, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Gene joke there. The way that Jude Law's character is set up is that the burden of being perfect because yes. it's like, oh, you had everything given to you. You need to be perfect was set up to him as being inescapable and where he... Uh, tried to he tried to commit suicide he didn't try to cripple himself correct yes he yeah tried to i think himself. that was yeah yeah and he also becomes an alcoholic even though he he, he had no genetic predisposition to it you know because they mentioned earlier you can remove even that but he becomes right. an alcoholic through circumstance not through right. disposition and i also like about Jude Law's character is that he's charismatic because mm-hmm. one of the things i actually was iffy about on the film was if they had predictive personality type things like violent attitudes, um, when they say like, I would have a violent bone in my body, uh, which eventually, <laughs> eventually he, he ends up being a murderer. Um, but, uh, they set it up so that, uh, all of the people, all the successful people in Gattaca seemed kind of, mm, how to say dickish where they were like, <laughs> they were just completely just isolated from each other. Uh, they weren't charismatic. They were just driven, 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 which I don't know. I feel like if there was an actual gene that would be really successful, it would be charismatic. Charisma would be one convincing. of them, yeah. Right. You'd think these would be a bunch of really nice people that would be um, maybe patronizing in the way they treat other people, but they'd be very warm about it. The people didn't seem warm and cooperative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're right about sort of not living up to expectations, that it's a burden, right, that he lacks the adversity. Um, and one way in which that's made kind of explicit, um, obviously the quote-unquote twist, which I actually feel like the film could have done without, is that the detective is is uh, Vincent's brother. Um, mm-hmm. You yeah. notice the metaphor is swimming. Um, they use swimming a lot. And they 
with uh, I forget his brother's name actually for some reason. Oh, uh, Anton, right? Because, Anton, because yeah. the father saves his name for the better brother. Right. Changes my the last, which is pretty brutal, Dad. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but what he um, when he swims, he swims in one of those those endless pools where he's treading water in place because it's pushing against him. And mm-hmm. I I, th- I think that's probably deliberate. It's kind of the idea is he can't make any actual progress because he's supposed to succeed already. So all he can do is meet expectations and stay where he is. Whereas Vincent can actually go somewhere, right? He swims in the ocean. He goes out an actual distance with actual danger, whereas his brother is kind of cursed by staying in place. Um, right. I mean, his his brother doesn't doesn't really have uh, the driving force to to be better because they already have an expectation for where he's going to be. He if he does basically what he would normally do, he's going to meet that. So he doesn't have any push in that way. Um, which definitely hindered him in that sense. There's another way in which the metaphor is made kind of literal, and you guys might have picked up on this, is that a lot of the staircases look like the genetic helix. Yeah, yeah, the main staircase that that Eugene has to climb up at one of the one of the suspense sequences. Yeah, yeah. Well, the doctor's office too, but in mm-hmm. the, the one that's the one the reason Eugene's is so interesting is that he literally has to climb up his yes. own genetic code, and he mm-hmm. can't do it very well because he he just has never had to do anything hard. So when yeah. he actually has to qu- kind of earn his own helix, he finds it very <laughs> difficult, which is, I gotta admit, it's a pretty impressive metaphor when you think about it. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I think that was one of the, the the most literal moments. And at that point in the movie, I was kind of, we had set piece after set piece of sort of just suspense moments. And I was, you know, started to feel repetitive and, and the suspense and then, and then just pay off for a little while, another scene and then suspense. But then when I saw it the second time and you notice the way that he actually sets that, uh, what's one of the last major suspense sequences in, in the movie to be more than just that. He's climbing the, the helix and I had more appreciation for it. Yeah, and, and he has, and we have more appreciation for him at that point too because now he has mm-hmm. a limitation even though it's a self-made limitation and he has to overcome that limitation and it's, it, it's, I don't remember if this if that's the moment in the film he started being less of a jerk. I know I think I know by the end he isn't anymore, but that would be pretty fitting uh, if 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 it matches up because at that point he has probably a greater appreciation for what it means to overcome something. Um, and for all we know, and when you look at his life, it's kind of fair to say that climbing up that staircase in when he had to might be the greatest thing he ever did mm-hmm. because it was the hardest. Yeah, and I, and back to your back to your previous point, I, I think that the the interesting thing for me about Jerome was that he wasn't sort he I didn't feel like he made a full transition one way or the other from from being the the jerk guy who's jealous about uh, about this guy who's t- who's impersonating him to then eventually being this nice guy. He was all throughout kind of kind of manic in his in his moods. He he was really disgruntled sometimes, and then other times he was the charismatic Jude Law. <laughs> yeah. So his, his first major role, I think, right? Oh, I didn't know that. I think it was, yeah, yeah. And he, he already seems like a seasoned veteran. No, and you're right about the charisma thing. I mean, if you didn't want that character to be charismatic, you had to cast someone else. Because <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. He kind of over, Ethan Hawke's good and all, but Ethan Hawke is not charismatic on the same level. He's a very different type of charismatic, though I think uh, Ethan Hawke, when he's good, has extraordinary charisma. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about the the metaphors. Um, obviously, the big one is the swimming, which I got to admit, I didn't see it coming. When he says at the end of the film, I never saved anything for the swim back, I just my my jaw just dropped open. I'm like, there it is, like the emotional climax of the film. Um, but it's it's foreshadowed a lot. Uh, obviously, in the pool thing I mentioned earlier about his brother sort of swimming in place. Um, when uh, the Tony Shalhoub character, the sort of the the gene drug pusher or whatever you want to call him, right, the guy operating outside the system. Uh, he says, you know, how serious are you about this? What can you pay me? And he says, 100%. And he says, that'll get you halfway there. So you need to use, <laughs> uh, you, well, there it is, right? You need to use 100% to get, just to get out, 
before you even swim back. Um, and it's one of those things where, and this is always a good metaphor, when you watch it a second time, you see it everywhere. Yeah, I would definitely put that. It's interesting you also like the repeated viewing thing because I'll say when I first watched the movie, I was like, okay, this is good. This is a decent movie where I basically, when I, ha- when I see a, a film centered around a concept where this isn't, this is more centered around a concept than it is about the story. But the, like, like, it's also kind of divided into two halves, but we'll, I want to talk yeah. about that later. But I kind of mentally put it between Groundhog Day and her, uh, where Groundhog <laughs> Day, I don't really like Groundhog Day, the film. I love the concept. The concept is so fruitful and interesting. You can't help but think about it after you see it because you put yourself, what would I do? What would I do? And then it's weird because Groundhog Day is a lot of a whole lot of what I wouldn't do, and like, it's a different. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, and it, but it's 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 good. Groundhog Day is good enough. You can get through it, and it's fine. And it's fun, and it's it's the concept is wonderful to her, which is uh, this Groundhog Day is kind of like a universally understood and loved concept. I wish I had another film to put on as like a. Her is a story, and it doesn't explore the concept as much as it really yes. uh, explores this individual mm-hmm. story. When that movie ends, and, you're like, I have so many questions. Where did they meet? What did they decide? The OS, exactly. like all that stuff. You know, like nothing about what the actual. You you do not go to see that movie to understand what AI will be like and relationships with AI because it the AI leave you know and it goes. Oh, I guess I can't. Okay, I'm not. I <laughs> I'll post a spoiler on every movie in the That's one podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rosebud was the sled. Let's just get it all out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Let's talk about that twist. <laughs> I don't I don't feel like that was even that great of a twist. Like, okay, like Oh, it's like, not supposed it's not supposed to be. But everyone knows that going in anyway. But no, you're yeah, right. You're making a great point though about the difference between uh, a concept film and a story. Mm-hmm. Her is an emotional journey and Gattaca and Groundhog Day are concept films and they're not really about I hate to say they're not about the characters, but they're not. Well, I I think I feel like the film was kind of divided into two acts, and the first one was really exploring the concept film, and, the, and then the second half really sort of became just a sci-fi thriller sort of uh, sort of affair. So it really felt kind of distinctly split, both in tones and and what they were presenting. The front half is really loaded with with all their concepts and all their information, and then the second half is more just these big set pieces of him trying to uh, not get caught, basically. Exactly. I completely agree with that, where the first half is the Groundhog Day half. The second half is not quite to where it's all fully just the uh, person, because it explores the concepts as well. But the first half is setting up the story, and then the second half is, now here's an individual's like push against that, about that system we just set up that seems so difficult uh, because of the first, well, all that we presented in the first half. Um, but so what, what has happened is, uh, my my post viewing experience has been closer to Groundhog Day than her because I just keep thinking about little things and so what what I have having to be like measured in it because there's so many things that the the movie didn't have I would say clear mistakes as it did missed opportunities because there's so much more I could I want like a mini series from this like from this <laughs> because there's so many character arcs like um I really, I really wanted more of the father vicariously living through a perfect version of himself mm. because, like, as mm-hmm. much as there's vicarious fathers living through their children, this is like, what if I had everything? Yeah, and I, I mm-hmm. made, I made a child, and I, I gave him everything. Then it's really more of like, what could I be with the best version of myself? And then, so not only do the, um, do, do the characters that are made perfect through the genetic modifying, 
they have their own standards to set against, but it's like my purpose was to see what the best thing is I could be because my father made me this way or mother or whoever is making living vicariously through it. That I found that arc really interesting because I kind of want to know what happened with the father. I just I love that I love that kind of theme because it's it feels <laughs> relatable in a way where it's like I I want to I want to not live through perfection, but I do want to know what perfection the perfect version of me could do. Right. And you don't want and nobody wants their parents to live that vicariously through them, but they do want to make their parents proud too. So there's mm-hmm. like it's a matter of degree. No, I agree completely. In fact, like what I most want to see, if I could pick like one thing, is I want to see what the father does when he hears, because they obviously the cat's kinda out of the bag once he's off to Titan, mm-hmm. right? I want to see what he thinks when he hears that his son did this. <laughs> like, is he ashamed because he thought, oh my god, I was selling him short all this time? Or is he proud that he did it anyway? Or is he both? You know? Right. Is he conflicted? Yeah. I'm sure he has conflicted feelings about it. Also, uh, I noticed uh, in the beginning of the movie that uh, actually both of his sons are named Anton. It's just that uh, Ethan Hawke's character has it as a middle name. Right. So I wonder if he might start calling him Anton as well after oh, that sort of oh. happens. Oh, geez. These poor kids. These poor, <laughs> poor kids. And the, well, the other one ends up being a detective. But you mm-hmm. know what's funny about that is there's kind of a hint that maybe it's not a very prestigious job because they don't say that Alan Arkin's character is an invalid, but it's heavily implied. Yeah. Well, also he's of a, a much older generation. So I, I think that that's definitely, that he definitely would be. An he's balding. His superior is much younger than him. He calls him sir. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I like that he was a uh, Lieutenant second class. So he's literally a second class citizen. <laughs> right? And they mentioned the instincts. And again, to the, to the film's credit, you know, he's not just much smarter than his superior. The um the brother, uh, Anton, he's pretty smart. He has good instincts. He, he's not always wrong. He's right sometimes. He's wrong other times. But when he's right, it's funny that he's right with his instincts. The investigators throughout the entire thing, they, they kept talking about each other's instincts rather than following where things are uh, are logically going. So that definitely, I think, was playing into the idea of, of uh, one being an invalid and the other one being a, being a valid. And of course, you know, uh, Anton is, he's got the same hairstyle. You know, one of the things that you lose here is there's the lack of individuality. You see all these different races, but they all have the exact same hair, the exact same dress. Uh, there's no personality, right? Um, right. The distinction between them are mostly meaningless. But the Alan Arkins character, he's wearing an old timey detective suit, you know, <laughs> he's got the, you know, the dame walked into my office kind of look. And that's clearly very deliberate. And they also very deliberately have him say sir a lot to just show you how weird it is that he's smarter and older, but works under this other guy because of his genetic code. It was also interesting where you're mentioning um, Ma'am because I was thinking about there's like I want to say 10% of Gattaca around that kind of fraction is uh, are women. Yes. And so it's interesting to think about because mm-hmm. that's a very – of all the eugenics that's ever taken place on in real history, as far as I know, that's the most uh, – the most one has been like you know in China and, and still other countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And that's like the most pertinent form of um, genetics is you know is the, the subtle elimination or I guess winnowing of women at the top because when you have like the physical, when you concentrate on the physical only and not, you know, um, uh, the way you get along with others and where I was talking about the missing charisma part, uh, you just have women. And so that's one of the other short stories I want to see from this universe is, so um, I'm not, I'm not sure, but you possibly need women still for, for babies. (laughs) Probably. Uh, But there's probably, there's probably at this point, there's probably ways to make it, um, you know, with like, uh, I don't know, some sort of, there's probably a sciencey way. Yeah, I'm just I'm actually throwing my hands away. There's a sciencey way to you know not have women. <laughs> but, it would cost uh, a decent it, amount to show it, but the, yeah, it probably exists. Right, exactly. Um, and so it's interesting to see that occur. But they didn't 
the like thing I like about it is there's there's allusions to racism and sexism in the movie that are not the focus of it because um, I feel like you could get you don't need science fiction to write up to, to think about racism and sexism you don't right, need that right. but you for for this kind of genetic um, idea you kind of need more of the science fiction but I'm glad that it kind of existed in the background because you had like the um, uh, the black doctor where he says like um, he talks about like what, like fair skin or something like that. Yeah. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. but no, he, he was very, very like no judgment, you know? No, he looked happy um, with it. Yeah. He didn't look right, uh, upset exactly. at all, but, but I, I definitely got the impression I, maybe this is just Blair Underwood's a really good actor, but I got the impression even from that one little look that like, yep, everybody picks that, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, it's like that old Louis CK joke, right? He said, if white were an option, I would re up every time. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, it's actually interesting. There's a deleted scene on the DVD, that exact same scene, where they're a little more overt, and maybe it was good that they removed this, where they imply something about wanting children, and it's pretty clear they're saying, make sure he's not a homosexual. Maybe mm-hmm. a little too heavy-handed for a <laughs> film that otherwise is not too heavy-handed. But in the deleted scene, it's pretty obvious what they're talking about, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... Uh... The the whole concept that they have here, there's really so many different ways that they have to explore it that I think they really had to pick their battles and, and where they wanted yes. to go about it. So I think the best that they really can do is just make allusions to these things, show someone that they do exist, and then that's something that you can take on, on your own and think about. And that's where that's where it can stand out as, as uh, an experience beyond watching it. Yeah, and I like what Slappy's saying about... Um... Oh, yeah, you don't have to imagine racism or sexism because you can see them, but you do have to sort of imagine eugenicism because, by definition, the people left behind uh, eugenics never exist. There's there's right. no one, they're not there to speak for themselves or even complain about any injustice. They just are erased. But I also like about it because, uh, I mean, there's multiple reasons why it's, I think, better to leave out because you could do you could do a movie on eugenics focusing on racism, but I feel like the themes of a eugenics movie focusing on racism would not be that different from a movie fo- focusing on racism. Right, yeah, right. I definitely agree that that sort of the best way to do that would be a lot closer to the now a lot closer to what's actually going on what we can what we can show rather than do this theoretical concept of it i definitely think that it was best to leave that sort of on the outside yeah and of course uh Vincent's goal here about, you know, pushing out across the universe, there's definitely a mirror there with the pushing out on genetic boundaries, you know, the limits of being human, uh, as opposed to the limits of humanity, if that makes sense, you know, the limits of an individual as opposed to the limits of the entire species. And I think it's probably a deliberate contrast. It's sort of saying, look, trying to go to this distant moon and seeing what we can find, that's the good kind of boundary pushing. That's natural. We're still who we are. And we're just seeing what we can achieve within it. This other thing, this is the bad kind of boundary pushing. It's not, it's not against boundary pushing. It's just knowing which boundaries are the ones you can actually afford to, to, to strain against safely. Uh, also, I have a quick question. Um, was there, is there a theory behind why when they're outside, the film is orange? Washed. like <laughs> See, like all the time like is there like a is there something about like the sun or like pollution or something because my, it just seems like very specific choice my theory was that it's the uh it's the director's first movie and he wanted to show off but <laughs> that, that was that was that was my thought i you know i wonder if it's related i wanted to bring i'm glad you brought that up because it might be related to the opposite which is all the places we see green there's a lot of mm-hmm. green uh I think it's a lot the, of greens, blues, and yellows, from what I remember. Right. I think green in particular might show up when Vincent's kind of in danger of being found out, or mm-hmm. or anything to do with him kind of clashing with the society. He's conceived in a green car, a very green car, by the way. Yeah. Uh, there are green lights in the tunnel when they're about to be tested in the car. Uh, there's a green light up against uh, the building when he punches the cop in the alleyway. The seaweed he has to swim through in the water is green. The morgue is green uh, when the detective examines the murder victim. Uh, there's green light... 
green lights come on with the valid invalid detection machines. Mm-hmm. It's red if he fails, it's green if he passes. And then at the end, when they catch the director as the murderer, the interrogation room is lit up green. So I don't really know if there's a theme to it or not, except that green's all over the place, and it's usually when he's clashing with this society. Right. Uh, one thing I did kind of like, and again, this is another example of the film making a metaphor literal, is that, I hate to put it this way, but the trash of humanity, they're janitors, they're cleaning up the trash. Um, mm. And the fun- funniest thing I thought of, actually, was the movie Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. <laughs> you remember, the whole thing is that is they try to engineer genetically a perfect person. And what they end up, they end up producing twins by accident, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's the one they wanted to create, and then Danny DeVito discovers that he's made of, quote, the leftover stuff, or the <laughs> leftover crap. Which, you know, bravo to Danny DeVito for being willing to take <laughs> that role, knowing what he's playing. And Danny DeVito, by the way, a producer on Gattaca. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was gonna say, so that might be uh, more than just a coincidence, he's yeah. a producer on this. This might be something Danny DeVito's thought about a little bit. Yeah. Oh, and the obsession, of course, the obsession with uh, other planets, obsession with the stars, that's a metaphor for fate. You know, what do our stars hold? What's in our stars? And, um, which I think is probably, I don't know. I don't know if it's any of this is deliberate or if it's just when you work, when, you have, when you're telling a good story and you hit universal themes, you see metaphor everywhere. I think that's true. Where if you, if you, if you are focusing well enough on one thing and your story is not cluttered with a bunch of competing themes, you start to see where those themes show up again because eh, you could say it's like it's almost elemental. Where if you if you concentrate on the element of fire and you make a movie about fire and it's concentrating on that, you're gonna see you're gonna think of ideas as fire, you're gonna think of lightning as fire, you're gonna think of heat as fire. You can cleansing see it in a fire, lot of things. Cleansing fire, yeah, all of it. Right, exactly. Right, and exactly. And then you, yeah, exactly. I like the idea of cleansing fire, where you can bring it in with other things that like fire is not actually directly associated with it, but people have these feelings about the idea. Uh, fire was actually a bad choice that I just realized. That <laughs> water would have been the best choice. Yeah. Yeah. Blood and steam. Right, uh, right, right, right. And of course, yeah. in keeping with that, he even literally wants off the planet that has rejected him. He's like, stop, yeah. Earth, I'm getting off, Earth is done for, <laughs> I want to go to Titan. Which, by the way, Titan, Titan is the only other object other than Earth with clear evidence of stable bodies of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which definitely, definitely deliberate. I guess he's, the whole movie is, hey, I, I'm really good at swimming, so I'm going to go swim on a different planet. <laughs> but I like the idea that he basically just wants off the planet that rejects him it's good that they sort of that he's doing this as opposed to the way that everyone else is trying he he's doing this thing to you know the planets rejected him and he wants off of it but you never ever get the sense with um with uh with vincent that he considers suicide ever it's not that it's that there's another place that he wants to go to he's not he's not taking that route um and actually tying into that um, he says that being weightless in space is like being in the womb. So there's sort of a, I'm going to go to a different planet and be born again. Yeah. And then he tries to bring Jude Law's character with him in that sort of idea where it's like <laughs> you, your legs wouldn't matter in space. Like if you were in space, it also wouldn't matter for you. The thing that ties you to Earth now uh, wouldn't matter in space. And so it's like this, I, I kind of agree with you where there's a hint of faith where come with me kind of a thing. Although I don't know how they would accomplish that. Oh, Hint of faith, uh, get up, rise, yeah. walk. You can walk now. That's, that's pretty explicitly uh, yeah. faith-based, too. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to say about it was um, when we discovered that the, the, the detective's Vincent, I thought that was actually I'm, – I'm really bad at catching twists beforehand all the time. But when he screamed Vincent in the alleyway, I was like, that's his brother. And I actually turned to my girlfriend and said, he, that's his brother? And she was like, no. And she's a liar. Is what I also found out. I learned a lot from this movie. Oh, she'd seen it before, right? Right. Uh, she, she lied yeah. to you. Right. She had seen it before, and uh, although lying about movie plot twists, totally defensible form of lie, in my opinion. <laughs> but that sort of thing, where um, it was just there was like there's enough emotion in that where 
I did not realize that at all because it's interesting where from our perspective, I, it's hard to discern between the people at the top, right? And so they are kind of an invisible class amongst themselves, but they mentioned earlier on where – and the other reason why I kind of felt like this was the brother was he said like – I think something like you'd be surprised about how they kind of vanish in the background like an, an, an invalid or whatever they're talking about. He was talking about he'd be, they'd be surprised and I was like – that's an interesting thing to say right there when I don't know anything about this character. Because mm-hmm. um, it yeah, seems like yeah, it's implying point. a past. And I was like, oh, it's got to be the brother. Yeah, and, and we knew we knew he was going to come back. But same for me when, it, uh, when, I, when I saw it the first time. This second he said Vincent, I knew exactly what it was there. One thing I can't believe we haven't talked about yet is uh, the piano player, which was actually one of the things I thought was coolest the first time I saw this film. Uh, the whole thing about they go to see a professional piano player and it turns out that the piece of music he's played can only be played with 12 fingers, which he has. And when I first saw the film uh, six years ago, my first thought was, oh, wow, so he's he's mutated, but he's turned it into a strength. I'm like, that's really cool. That dovetails with the theme of the movie. But watching it this time, I thought, well, wait a second. No, maybe they deliberately added fingers so he could do it. And now I realize I don't know which it is, but that both both complement the theme. Yeah. Uh, yes, I that was actually the note was, it's interesting that Gattaca does not push into the better-than-human theme, except for that. Because mm-hmm. it feels like when you get into eugenics, like even these people are not mutating uh, people into better-than-human ideas, or they're not making nine-foot-tall humans with like super strength. They're just perfecting <laughs> on humanity. And I think that's interesting, because you could definitely go in that direction with genetic mutation. Like They, they very specifically did not go that way, except for the you know 12-fingered piano player. Yeah. They kind of left that idea of not only perfecting humanity, but more humanity is not enough kind of a thing and i feel like other films could kind of go that direction so they needed i also uh, i really enjoyed the way that they they revealed that in the movie i thought it was a nice uh it was a nice sort of touch to it where she puts on the glove and then you can see there's one extra there's one extra finger hole i like what you said too about hiding in the background obviously there's a lot of yeah you don't see what's in front of you right because people's expectations inform their reactions a lot more than they want to admit we know that from personal anecdote and from research and all sorts of other stuff that, you know, if, if someone thinks something is one way and it's not and it's right in front of their face, they're going to bring their preconceptions to it and it's going to take a lot to overcome that. Although I have to say, there is one part of this movie that doesn't really work in a modern day setting, which is that if those screens were not so ridiculously low resolution, <laughs> there is no way he gets away with this half as long as he does. Oh, yeah. That was that was one of the things that I found that I found funny is that in the beginning of the movie, um, what uh, the guy who's who's helping him become um, become Eugene gives like just makes one sort of offhanded comment. Oh yeah, um, who's like who's looked at a picture in the in the last decade or that's whatever. fair, yeah. And like that sort of informs like the whole rest of why it's okay that you know that he doesn't actually look like this guy. Then I that's kind of funny with the fact that now we have such good facial recognition software that you know rather than taking a blood sample on your way into work it's far more likely that we'd be that we just get our face compared to um compared to a photo we've taken previously and that would be used because facial recognition software is getting more and more advanced you know by the by the month probably right but it does kind of fit the theme too which is that like yeah they really don't care what you look like that's not the issue you know they they don't look at photos because that's not what's important anymore they care about you know your genetic code underneath um i did like one of the cool things and i guess you probably like this too slappy because you were saying you wanted them to explore the theme a little more the uh take some dna to a random place and have it tested that was a cool little extension of the world that absolutely would exist Right, and, and wasn't wasn't the the main purpose of it from from what I remember is people who um, 
who like found someone or and yeah, dating had some sort of an affair with them. Yeah, and then brought it to them so they could see if it the was... first thing all all technological breakthroughs are based to uh, insects somehow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a genetic Tinder. Yeah, genetic <laughs> Tinder. That's exactly right. That's what they should call the film, yeah. genetic Tinder. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like, and that's what would happen. That would be one of the first things we would do. Oh, definitely. One of the definitely. first applications would be, well, this person I just made out with, you know, what's their right. genetic score? Yeah, in a decade, Ancestry.com will start up a dating portion <laughs> of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I like, um, he was a, if I recall right, he was a 93 uh, Jerome was, oh, sorry, well, Jerome, Eugene, whatever you want to say. And I, I'm going to assume that's on a scale of 1 to 100. And I think yeah. Uma Thurman's character, she had, what, a very slight possibility of a heart condition, and she felt inferior and pathetic. But it's kind of interesting, because when you start off, she's this unattainable figure for him, and you realize mm-hmm. she feels like a loser because she has, quote, an acceptable risk of heart condition. Right. Which is, like, nothing. Everybody <laughs> everybody in the world today has that. Right. I mean, they're living in America, so we figured <laughs> yeah. that... That's interesting. They also, um, on, uh, Uma Thurman's character, uh, which I, first of all, I'm also terrible with names. So I just remember the Jude Law, Uma Thurman, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That's probably the problem. <laughs> I'm going to miss things like Eugene. But what's interesting is thinking about the sub top class. So, um, if you are someone that has a 99% chance of no heart problems, it is even harder if you develop a, a heart problem. So I'm thinking about this like sub top class where they have the top class of the genetically modified people. And then there's the people that just randomly, just happened to get those problems that they were almost certainly not going to get and how betrayed by fate those people would feel <laughs> like betrayed by genes they would feel and that's really interesting is i want to see uh people that were you know genetically although i'm also realizing that another thing with the movie isn't um I, I i don't think they actually modify genes because and then that's not necessarily what eugenics is it's more that they um uh they cut out they find the best pot pairs of um of semen and egg essentially right Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they allow those to go in, and that's what's yeah. really going on. Is uh, but then the, you could probably do have... multiple tests and see, you know, if one batch doesn't get you what you want, then you could go to a better doctor or other things like that. And but... that, that 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 obviously has a lot of modern political connotations. There's sort of a stem cell vibe to it. I think yeah. I can't remember if this was the deleted scene or the actual film where they say what happens to the other ones. The, the course of the Catholic mother asks that. I, I do um, think and I he do basically think says like the actual film, yeah, yeah, and he, and he kind of says, well, they're really small, so don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, which. You know, obviously they're trying to indicate to us that this future society is a little glib about all you know, these things. Mm-hmm. Wherever you come down on them, they're sort of like, yeah, well, don't worry about it. You don't have to think about that. Which <laughs> goes back to the eugenics thing I mentioned where certain problems never have to be seen, right? And that's right. this is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that aside – it's not quite – science making super life it's hyper evolution it's evolution like mm-hmm. made to the best evolution could possibly be where it's you it's not just through random amounts of um of of, of thousands or millions of pairs and figuring out which one succeed it's finding the best pair beforehand it's i mean it's 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 we don't even have this kind of artificial selection for dogs and stuff like that but it's that kind <laughs> of guided evolution taken to its extreme where it's but it's also it's still, there you know like it's like, that's why they when you brought up the dating thing is it's not like um because for a moment i was like why would you ever why would you ever um bother with dating or bother like with what their genes are you just have it modified but that's right you still need the other person to have really great genes because you still want that you want to push the boundary farther that goes to what you were saying about not taking any cheap shots. This is the most culturally acceptable version of this unacceptable idea. This is the version <laughs> we are most likely to fall prey to because mm-hmm. of what you just said. And the doctor, you could see he had his talking points ready. It's just the best version of you. You get the impression he said this to everyone. Right. Right. It's mm-hmm. still fair. It's still fair. It's, it's, it's things you could have happened anyways. We're just making sure it does. 
which, by the mm-hmm. way, is textbook narcissism. Which is, <laughs> well, no, seriously, yeah. text, textbook narcissism is I I can lie about doing this because I could have done it. I just didn't get around to it. <laughs> mm. But then the thing the thing with the hyper evolution too is that it, it's always uh, everything that we're doing uh, that they're doing in the movie is guided by their own heuristics that they've come up with for what's good and what's bad. So it doesn't really get driven towards what's best, but it gets driven to sort of one extreme of of what we've decided works for us which probably which it seemed to me at least in this case is you know uh basically like capitalism it's about money it's about longevity of workers and businesses uh for a lot of the things which is about money it's not so much that you you know just decide to push one person down or lift up another it's more by you you change the terms of the debate up front you define value a certain way and then it becomes hard to argue because they're saying, well, aren't you saying this is, this, you're saying this isn't valuable? This isn't, this person isn't best for this. This person isn't best for that. And you're saying, well, no, they are. The question, the thing I'm questioning is the premise, right? The way you're defining your terms to begin with. And that's it's that green theme. It's just money. <laughs> yeah. And not just envy. It's money too, by the way. Envy and money are the same color. It, it's, uh, it's kind of funny the way that, um, someone like Vincent goes to his interviews too and is surprised when they're, you know, over nearly immediately as if, uh, a 30 minute, sit down with a possible future employer would get them anything more than that you know right That's, right or as if the current version isn't just instead of i'm testing your blood let me just look at your diploma and, exactly yeah good enough exactly. you know we'd kind of do that already when we can we just can't do it very well yet yeah yeah my experience with interviews is that it, what actually happens during the half hour or the hour at least on an in- initial screen is significantly less important than what you've done in the past and your references and right, right. and all things like that. So, Although I like to think that the ultimate job interview is what he did. The fact that he mm-hmm. cheated that much and was that diligent proves that he should have gotten the job. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I told my interviewer when I they discovered I had lied on my, uh, my resume. And <laughs> most, of the film, most of the shots that were really beautiful in the film worked because they tied into the theme and so they didn't really need to have any individual like gorgeous shots. But one that still struck me as just a great shot, and I loved it, was when they were the first time that they had sex, um, or I guess the only time the movie alludes to, uh, was up. I think it was upside down with the yeah, ocean, yeah. and it was just kind of like spun into focus, and it was just a gorgeous shot. And it was interesting because I'd realized, or I didn't realize that most of the things that were great about the film visually were because it, it was unified to the theme. So it's actually kind of weird that they just had a sh- scene that was beautiful for its own sake. Unless maybe there's some sort of gene thing. Maybe it was spinning <laughs> that like a well, uh, curve spins or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, with this, not exactly as literal or technical as that, but again, of course she has a, a house with a, with a view of the ocean. Of, of course, course, it's the ocean in the background. The ocean, which for these purposes is the gene pool, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, also, the thing of being upside down, I mean, I guess you could kind of say it's an inversion, because the whole film, again, she feels inferior to him, and then she finds out she's actually wildly superior, but she stays mm-hmm. with him anyway. There's a lot of flipping, right? There's a lot of inversion, and I think that probably goes back to the thing we mentioned earlier about when you have good dramatic building blocks, stuff like this just crops up everywhere. Oh, that the, the, the inversion theme directly comes out when uh, he gives, or she gives him a hair. Because you're right, where she had thought that she was, out of the two of them, she was the genetically inferior one. So she gave him a hair, and he's like, I don't care. The wind took it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she gets to say that exactly back to him when the tables have turned. Right. And there's a, and there's a, lot, of, a lot of moments of that as the film reaches its, uh, reaches its ending, where we see the same stuff that happened earlier, uh, but you know, from a different perspective, from the, flipping, uh, from the flip side of it. Yeah, and the same way our stars are sort of a metaphor for our fate, uh, 
the, the drifting of the wind is too, for that matter. Um, What's nice about the movie is that you can tie so many things into it, and so after the fact, you can you can grab things about eugenics and bring it back to it. All right, well said. Uh, thank you guys for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Wild them in the end. You got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end. And you've got a hit. <laughs>